You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. We believe uh, that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible passage is found in the Gospel of Mark, uh, starting at chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through to chapter 12, verse 12. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say, from heaven, he will say, then why don't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you heard this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Uh, Gracious God, we thank you for last year. And as we look to this new year, what better way, God, to start this year than to gather around your word. So as we hear from your word this morning, uh, please, God, give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us. And may it be for us our direction, our stay, our comfort 
um, throughout this year and many years to come. And these things, God, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. How are you guys feeling about this year? Penny, I often think uh, how people feel about the year to come depends on the year that they've just had. So I think, you know, I had, I think, I don't know why, my last year was actually wasn't that bad, but I had a number of people say, you know, people send you happy, um, not, um, happy New Year messages at midnight, and I had about three people say, uh, Happy New Year, Adam, don't worry, it'll be okay. And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay, I don't know what vibe I give, but... It will be okay, don't worry. I, I did ask another friend last night, what are you looking forward to? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? If you're a, a more pessimistic type, you more normally dread what's to come, it is actually quite helpful to ask, what am I looking forward to under God? Um, they said a snow trip, which is good. It's very warm today, so maybe that's something you can look forward to as well. Um, but I was thinking, what, what do you want to achieve this year? I mean, it feels a bit futile, doesn't it? We go through this exercise over and over and over again every single year. New Year's resolutions are your to-do list for the first week of the year, uh, and you, so, so you just have lesser and lesser expectations of what you'll seek to achieve. Uh, on, the, on the off year uh, that Joe told me, I think it's every seven years, we have um, the 1st of January on a Sunday or something like that. You, you'll probably get your New Year's sermon asking you, you know, what are your New Year's resolutions? So, so let me do that. What are your New Year's resolutions? Uh, so some people obviously want to get fit and healthy. Um, I'll be signing up to the gym tomorrow. I've got two more days before the New Year's sale finishes. Probably end up going for one week. Um, other people want to buy their first home, change career, get married. If you're a Christian, actually, though, can I suggest, you know, we all have these different godliness goals. Well, I hope you do, to grow in patience, kindness, love. But, if this, but here's a goal that should always be a goal every year. Why not make this year another one where you introduce a friend to Jesus? Wouldn't that be great? Why not make this year another year where you seek to introduce another friend to Jesus to bring them to consider Christianity or, or that three-week series we're having, If I Could Ask God Anything? One of the explore courses that we're running. Wouldn't it be great to, to have one person on your heart right from the get-go who you're praying for and intentional about in seeking to introduce to Jesus? It'd be great. If you're, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, it's really good that you're here this day of all days. And can I make a suggestion? Have you ever thought about finally tackling that God question? Have you ever thought about finally tackling that God question? Who is God? What's he like? And what difference can he make in my life? Uh, you know, recently I was speaking to one of the brothers here at church and he told me actually how some of his friends will quietly ask him, hey man, so, so tell me more about this God thing. They won't say it in a group, but one-on-one -on -one they might. And it occurred to me then that many people who aren't Christian actually ask that God question all the time. They just won't ask it in public. They'll, they'll ask it in the quietness of their own hearts. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you think, actually, I wouldn't mind finally figuring out that God question. Or maybe you're someone who's grown up in church. You've always kind of assumed the answer to the God question, but you've never actually properly addressed it. In fact, if you were to be honest with yourself or with someone else for a moment, you've got so many doubts about who God is, but the trains are already moved, right? It just feels a little bit too late to ask those questions now. 
And it's so much easier instead to either ignore those questions, turn up at church each week and have a very superficial faith, or just walk away from God altogether. And if that's you, can I actually encourage you this year to do something just a little bit different? Be brave. Be courageous. Why not take this year to revisit your faith foundations, to actually surface those doubts, to ask that God question afresh? And can I say, no one will judge you for it. In fact, I think it's the best thing you could do this year. Do you realize, though, but sitting beneath that God question is actually an even deeper question. It's the Jesus question. Because a lot of people claim to know God, but Christians, we claim something a little bit different. We claim that Jesus is God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might wonder, well, why? There's so many claims to who God is. Why not Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, or even atheism? There is a claim to God. Now, what makes Jesus worth listening to? Why should I listen to him? It's a great question. Actually, you're not, you're not the first person to actually ask it, right? In fact, it's right there in the Bible passage we read just before. We, we were reading an extract from the Gospel of Mark. And, and a gospel is just a biography of Jesus. And it was, this one was written within about 30 to 40 years of Jesus' lifetime. And Mark wrote this gospel to answer the God question. Who is he? Who's the Messiah? Who is God's anointed king? And back in 2019, for those of you who are with us, we, we looked at the first half of this gospel. And in that first half, Mark says this, Jesus is the answer to the God question. Jesus is God's anointed king. Then two years ago, you might remember, in chapters 9 to 11, Mark then zoomed in and asked that second question. Okay, if Jesus is God's anointed king, then, then what sort of king is he like? And he shows us in chapters 9 to 11 the kind of king that Jesus is. Three times in those three chapters, he predicts that Jesus is a king who will suffer and die. Summed up so beautifully in chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many. Who is God? Jesus is. What is God like? He's sacrificial and he's loving. And now we, we, we parachute, as it were, into this gospel at chapter 12. It's the final quarter of the match, the moment before the climax of the story. Jesus is facing Jerusalem, the place where he's going to suffer and die for his people, the place where he's going to accomplish his mission, which is why we're going to sing Jerusalem a lot over this series. And in this final quarter we're going to see the difference that Jesus can make to your life and mine. So, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're reconsidering what it means to follow him, can I ask, stick with us over the next 10 weeks. It's a big question, right? So, so you owe it to yourself, right? Give yourself at least this series, at least this series, to start seriously engaging that God question. Or to start seriously revisiting that Jesus question. 
And today we're going to kick off by asking that question before. Why should I listen to Jesus? Why should I listen to Jesus? And Mark's going to show us why Jesus is so worth listening to through two scenes and three answers. Two scenes and three answers, and I'll have you out by lunch, right? Scene number one, it's a standoff. It's a standoff. Uh, if you've ever seen one of those country westerns, uh, I, I haven't, but you know, I've heard of them, uh, you'll know that scene of a high-stakes standoff between two cowboys. There's the good guy wearing the white hat and the bad guys with the black hat. It's hands at the holster, guns drawn, shoot to kill. That's the name of the game. But the standoff here in chapter 11 is just a little bit different. Because the people who are out to get Jesus, who are out to shoot Jesus, they're not the bad guys with the black hats that we might think. Uh, verse 27 tells us they're the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. Gosh, these are the religious leaders of the day. And that doesn't make sense, right? Because these guys are supposed to be the good guys. And yet it's them who are having a standoff with Jesus. Why? Well, in the last chapter, Jesus had just gone into the temple. He'd overturned the tables of the money changers. That the temple, it, it had become this place of corrupt religion, where, where religious leaders were profiting off the poor and needy. So Jesus comes in, he literally overturns their corruption. He said, no, 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 no. No, God's temple shouldn't be a place where people are ripped off. It should be a place where people from any nation can be forgiven by God. He's got that beautiful line, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you might not be a Christian, at least partly because you hate religion which abuses the weak. And can I say you're not alone? In fact, Jesus is right there with you. There is no one more against corrupt religion than Jesus. In fact, it's why then in chapter 11, verse 18, back a few verses, the religious leaders who were getting kickbacks off the weak, they now want to take Jesus out. So here in this standoff, what do they do? They, they set a trap. They ask Jesus in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Why should we listen to you. And, and here's the trap, right? Like if Jesus says, oh, well, you should listen to me because I'm actually the Messiah or, or my authority is from God, it's game over. They'll, they'll arrest him for blasphemy instantly. And Jesus can't allow himself to be arrested just yet. He still has this mission to accomplish. He still needs to suffer and die to save his people. So what does he do? To disarm the religious leaders, Jesus responds with a question of his own. And here's the question, right? Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Now, now let me explain, right? John, John, he, he was a prophet who saw Jesus for who he really was. And he told everyone to listen to him. In fact, in chapter 1, when John baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven onto Jesus, and God the Father declared, 
You, Jesus, are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. You see, John saw who Jesus was and pointed everyone to him. So why is Jesus asking this question about John? Well, can you see, it's, his, it's actually his indirect way of pointing to himself. If John was saying that Jesus came from God, then, then what the religious leaders thought about John is actually what they then think about Jesus. So, so when Jesus asked, well, was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin, he's really asking, am I of heaven or of human origin? Now, this is actually a really, really smart answer because it does two things in one. Firstly, it answers the God question. Jesus is actually indirectly saying, well, you know, I am from heaven. I am from God. I speak for God. There's my authority. But secondly, it disarms the religious leaders in this standoff. Because here's what happens, right? He says now, well, what do you think about John? And they go, well, if we say, oh, John's baptism was from heaven, he spoke for God, then Jesus is going to ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? And why don't you believe me? After all, John did. But then on the other hand, if they say, oh, no, 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 John's baptism was just some human thing, the crowds will turn against them. Because even the crowd saw who John really was, a prophet pointing to Jesus. So I just love the total anticlimax of how this ends, right? What do the religious leaders say? Ah, we don't know. And Jesus responds, well, then you won't. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus is buying time. He still has his mission to suffer and die for his people. But in this early standoff, what has he done? He's almost taken the gun off the religious rulers. And he's shown us, albeit indirectly, who he really is. Now, Jesus is exactly who John saw him to be. He is God's beloved son. But I love it because Jesus isn't done. He looks at the religious leaders and now in this standoff, he does something a bit different. He tells them a story. He tells them a story. Just look at chapter 12, verse 1. Mark writes, he began to speak to them in parables. What is a parable? Well, a parable, here's, here's a quick Adam Special Version definition, right? It's a subversive story with a subtle message and a sting in the tail. There you go. There you have it. Three S's, every standard preacher. Subversive story, subtle message, sting in the tail. That's what you've got to remember, right? Number one, it's subversive because it uses pictures and ideas that everyone would have been familiar with. In that sense, it kind of gets under your skin, right? Secondly, its message is usually subtle because it's told in such a way that if actually you're humble, you'll get it. But if you're proud, you won't. And thirdly, it always has a sting in the tail. Look out for it. Because it targets the people who we think are the good guys, and it says, nah, in fact, you've got it all so wrong. It's a subversive story with a subtle message and a sting in the tail. So let me tell you, let me tell you the subversive story, right? Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. I've often said, if I wasn't a pastor, wouldn't mind, you know, owning a vineyard. 
and hiring other people to run it, right? This is a labor of love. And this guy's smart, right? He owns this vineyard, but he doesn't want to put the expense to run it himself. So he, he, he leases out his vineyard to tenant farmers who can grow the grapes and produce the wine while he's away from the farm. It's harvest time in verse 2. And the owner sends a servant to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is great. This is my dream, actually, right? As I said, own a vineyard, turn up whenever you want, have a... I don't, I, don't, no, I don't believe in servants, but you know, I have a, have a worker, send them down, pick up three bottles of the best Merlot, bring it back. Now, if you were one of the tenants, right, my guess is this is what you do, right? Your, your, your master sends his servant to say, give me the best of the produce, give me, give me the best bottles of wine that you've produced here. What will you do? You, you'll get the three best bottles, you'll send them back to the owner, you'll take a fourth bottle and give it to the servant just to say, you know, there's a bonus round, right, on the house. You'd want to show your boss that his vineyard's doing well and that I've been doing a pretty good job at caring for it. Let me tell you, that that's probably the rational thing to do. Uh, instead, here's an idea. Verse 3, the tenants take the servant, they beat him and send him away empty-handed. Not a career-advancing move. The owner sends another servant and they do the same to him. And the owner then sends another servant and they do it all again. You think it's again and again and again, but it actually gets worse and worse and worse. They send the first away, they shame the second, and then they slaughter the third. And the master says, this isn't working right. I'll stop sending my servants, I'm going to send my son. The son who I love. Surely, he thinks in verse 6, they'll respect my son. But these tenants go from bad to bad to bad to worse because they plot to kill the owner's son. You see, in that day and age, there was a custom that if there wasn't an heir, the property of a deceased person would fall to the tenants. And that's actually what these tenants are banking on right now, that this property will fall to them. So what do they do? They seize the son. They kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. It's awful. Why is it a subversive story? Because every person who listened to Jesus would have known exactly what he was talking about. Anyone in that day and age hearing that story for the first time, they'll go, I get it. Because throughout the Old Testament, the vineyard is a picture of God's people. If you were here in our Isaiah series, my favorite sermon in it, Isaiah 5, the vineyard of the Lord. And God sung a song about his vineyard. And just like the owner of this story, God poured his heart and soul, a labor of love into this vineyard. But instead of yielding good grapes, it yielded worthless grapes. God did everything he could for his people, but what did they do? They rejected his love, gave you all I had, and what did you do? You tossed it in the trash. God had no choice but to tear down that vineyard. It's heartbreaking. Isaiah 5 is actually a song of unrequited love. And now can you see what Jesus is doing, right? He's looking at that song that everyone would have known. He's telling this story about that vineyard and he's telling the religious people, it's you. You did this. Now, let me be clear. I'm going to change my rules a little bit, right? Normally, normally, parables have a subtle message. A message that 
the humble will hear, but the proud won't understand. But I love this parable because the, the message of this parable is as subtle as a gun. Because it's not hard to know what's going on here, right? Let me spell it out for you. The owner is God. Wow, right? The vineyard, his people. The servants are the prophets of old whom God has sent over and over and over again to call these people home. The tenants are these religious leaders whom God trusted to care for his vineyard, to care for his people. But they rejected God's prophets. They sent them away. They shamed them. They slaughtered them. And God finally says, if they won't listen to my prophets, surely they'll listen to my son. And for all of us who grew up at church in Sunday school, the son is Jesus. Can you see the not-so-subtle message of this story? You see, in this standoff, right, the religious leaders were asking, hey, Jesus, why should we listen to you? What authority do you have? And Jesus says, well, I'm God's beloved son. But from this parable, we can see something else, can't we? We can see what these religious leaders will do. You see, just like the tenants, they'll seize Jesus, they'll kill him, and they'll throw him out of the vineyard. Even worse, they won't just toss God's love in the trash, they'll toss his son in the trash. And you know this message is as subtle as a gun because verse 12 says, the religious leaders knew he'd spoken this parable against them. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? What's the sting in the tail? What's the sting in the tail? Here it is, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. So who is it that God will judge in the end, right? Ironically, it's the religious leaders. Ironically, it's the so-called good guys. Because God trusted them to care for his vineyard, but they burned it to the ground, rejected his servant, and tossed his son in the trash. And God says to these religious rulers of that day, what you did to Jesus, I'll do to you. I'll take the vineyard away from my ancient people and I'll give it, I'll open it to the world. I'll transform your corrupt religion and I'll make it into a house of prayer for all nations. See, friends, here's this thing in detail, right? The people we would have thought are the moralistic good guys are actually the bad guys because they rejected God's Son. The religious leaders who are entrusted with everything will end up with nothing because they rejected Jesus. Two scenes, a standoff and a story. Now three answers. Why should I listen to Jesus? Why should I listen to Jesus? Well, firstly, here's reason number one. You should listen to Jesus because, well, Jesus is God's beloved son. Notice, he's not just some other prophet who God sends to tell us the answer to God. No, Jesus is the answer to the God question. There's the difference. Jesus doesn't just tell us the answer to the God question. He is the answer to the God question. So, so you might come here, you're not, a, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you go, I've got that God question in my head. I don't talk about it to anyone, but I keep wondering, who is God? What's he like? Uh, and what difference will he make in my life? The parable says, Mark says, well, look at Jesus. There's your answer. Hebrews 1 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. And I love this, the exact expression of his nature. Did you get that? The exact expression of his nature. 
Let me tell you why that's such good news. It means Jesus isn't just some doppelganger of God. He isn't someone who just kind of looks like God, that you can know something about, but you don't actually really know the real God. No, no, Jesus is the perfect picture of God. The exact expression of his nature. Or John 14, Jesus himself says, the one who's seen me has seen the Father. See, you can be confident that when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God. Isn't that special? People spend their whole lives looking for God, and actually it's that simple. You can find him in the pages of the Bible. You see, Jesus is God's beloved son, and he speaks with God's divine authority. A lot of people and a lot of religions will claim to know the answer to the God question, right? In Islam, Muhammad, it says, I am a prophet and I know the way to Allah. In, in Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama says, I have reached enlightenment and I know the truth. And in our secular age, many people will say, well, I'm just my own God and I know what a good life looks like. I know, I know, I know, but only Jesus says, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Sunday school, that's normally where I'd stop my memorizing. I wish I continued it because it sounds so hard, and it is. But here's the beautiful promise. If you know me, you will also know my Father. Isn't that beautiful? If you want to know who God is, come to Jesus. Why should you listen to Jesus? Because he's God's beloved Son. Secondly, here's the harder answer. We should listen to Jesus because if we reject him, we reject God. I mean, that's what happened in the story, isn't it? That the tenants rejected the son, and by rejecting the son, they were actually rejecting the vineyard owner. Some people uh, want to reject Christianity or walk away from Jesus and his church. They don't want all the kind of institutional stuff. They don't want Jesus. They don't want this. But they still want to say, I still want to believe in God. I still want to pray to him. And, and can I gently say, I think what God is saying in this parable is, you can't do that. Because how you treat my son is actually how you treat me. But we can't waltz up to God in prayer whilst refusing to listen to Jesus. Now, the two have to go together. It's like me saying, you know what, I really love you, just hate your child. It doesn't really work, does it? No, if we reject Jesus, actually, this parable is saying, Mark's telling us, if we reject Jesus, we're rejecting God. But here's the hard part. We're actually asking him to reject us. You see, he did to the tenants what they did to his son. And he'll do with us what we do with his son as well. If we accept Jesus, if we follow Jesus, well, then God will accept us. There's the good news. The harder part of this, of course, is if we reject him, God will reject us. Now, part of me goes, that, that's kind of unfair, it's kind of harsh, it's kind of like, God, can't you be a little bit nicer? But... Who can blame him, right? I mean, what more could we expect him to do if we keep on insisting on being like those tenants and tossing his son in the trash? Well, we can't be on the fence about Jesus. And we shouldn't be waiting for 
anyone else to come or something else to happen before I decide if I should follow him, right? Like that's often what it's like. Oh, I've heard, I've heard all the claims about Jesus, but just give me more time. I'll wait for something else in my life to happen and then, then I'll decide to follow him. No, could you see from this parable, God has already sent servant after servant, prophet after prophet to open our eyes. And chapter 12, verse 6 literally says this. Here's a clunky Greek Adam version. Still one he has. Maybe a Yoda version, right? Still one he has. A beloved son. He sent him eschaton. He sent him lastly, finally, ultimately. He sent him full stop. Can you see what he's saying? No one else is coming. Because Jesus is all we need. So, so please don't, don't keep waiting for something else to happen or, or someone else to come along. No, God's done all of that and he's given us all we need. In Isaiah 5, the Lord asked this, what, what more could I have done for my vineyard, right? And here in Mark 12, he asked, well, what more could I have given for my vineyard? I even gave them my son who I love. Why should we listen to Jesus? Because Here's a harder message, right? If we reject him, we're rejecting God. And rejecting God, we're asking God to one day reject us. But finally, I want you to see that's not how this parable ends. Finally, we should listen to Jesus because his rejection leads to our salvation. Here's the crazy truth, right? Here's how it ends. His rejection leads to our salvation. Do you notice how the passage ends? It ends in verses 10 and 11, and and Jesus quotes Psalm 118. A psalm is just an ancient song written by God's people. And this is what that song says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the lawn and is wonderful in our eyes. Can you see that original psalm, it sings about God's victory. It celebrates our salvation. But notice how the cornerstone of salvation is established. Notice how that foundation of our victory is actually laid. It's established by its rejection. This is weird, right? Like it's saying that God will will, will somehow achieve our victory through his own rejection, That, that, that God's special person, God's only son, he'll be rejected by people, but in being rejected, he'll actually save his people. This rejection is victory through rejection. And Mark says, that's actually a picture of Jesus. Jesus says, that's a picture of me. My rejection will lead to God's victory and your salvation. You see, in this gospel, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected by the religious rulers. They're going to put him up on false trial. They're going to condemn him and kill him as a criminal. They're going to be the tenants who will seize him, kill him, throw him out of the vineyard. And in his death, Jesus is going to be that stone that the builders rejected. And yet it's precisely through his rejection that Jesus becomes the cornerstone of our salvation. It's by dying in our place, bearing our sin, rising to new life, that Jesus becomes a, a new vineyard for the whole world. He he opens the gates of this vineyard and invites everyone in. He tears down the corrupt religion of that temple that exploited the weak and the poor. 
And he brings in a kingdom and a vineyard where, where people from every nation can come and find forgiveness and freedom forever. It's beautiful. You see, here's the point, right? Jesus is God's beloved son. And he allowed himself to be rejected and killed so that we might be accepted and live. Did you get that? Let me say that again. Jesus, God's beloved son, allowed himself to be rejected and killed so that we might be accepted and live. You see, friends, here's the deepest point of all. Why should you listen to Jesus? Because his rejection leads to our salvation. Because he suffered so that we can be forgiven. Because he died so that we might live. If you're a Christian, you might have heard that message a thousand times over. I hope you have. And I hope that actually that's the best way to start this year. To tell me that old, old story. That message, friends, defines our life. So why not commit this year to sharing that message with at least one other person? Why not think of one person in your life who you can be praying for every week and being intentional about bringing into church or introducing to Jesus? If you're not a follower of Jesus, please, can I ask you, can I urge you, don't let this year pass without seriously tackling that God question. Start this year, actually, with a commitment to really figure out who Jesus is. And maybe you're here, and your whole life you've called yourself a Christian. You look at your parents' faith, and you're like, man, they have a really genuine faith. They really love the Lord, but inside my heart, I just feel nothing. But I go to church every week. I've been there every single week without fail. On the outside, I look faithful, but on the inside, I just don't really know. If you're someone like that, someone who's always assumed the Jesus question, but you don't really know who he is, if you're honest. Can I urge you, this year, go back to those faith foundations. Surface those doubts. Ask that God question afresh. There's no shame in it. There's no judgment and no one's going to condemn you for it. In fact, can I say personally, I think it's the greatest thing you can do this year. The easy part, we're going to be here every Sunday morning without fail. We'll have countless other opportunities for you to ask that God question. Because you know what what I really hope for this year? What, What I really want more than anything else in this year? If you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, if you're someone who's rethinking what it means to follow him, my biggest desire this year is for you to really know the Jesus who we love. That'd be amazing. Can I pray? God, we thank you that you sent your son to us. That though we were so undeserving, you sent the Lord Jesus. And you said, surely they'll respect my son. But humanity didn't. Your people didn't. We rejected your son. We took him. We seized him. We killed him. And we threw him out of the vineyard. And yet, God, you're so kind. You're so, so kind that through the rejection of your son, you win salvation for us all. 
God, as Christians, sometimes we don't just stop and go, thank you. We keep thinking about all the practical things, and yeah, it's good to think about who we want to invite to church or who we want to introduce to Jesus, but more than anything else, as we start this year, God, we just thank you. Thank you for being so, so kind to us, that though we didn't deserve it, you won our salvation in Christ alone. For those of us here, God, who are revisiting what it means to follow you, for those of us here, God, who want to figure out that God question clearly, help us this year, God, open our eyes, help us see Jesus. And we pray these things in his strong name. Amen.